husbands and wives together. We are going to be in Acts chapter 8 this morning. I love Acts chapter 8 because in it we have a transition. Basically the early church had started and uh, last week we studied and, and chapter 7 is not really that exciting because you have, although it's exciting because Stephen's giving a testimony about God's faithfulness to the nation of Israel and yet um, the problem with that is that afterwards they get a little aggravated and they kill um, The religious leaders that were against Jesus were not just against him, they hated him, and they wanted him dead. They didn't want him there anymore. That's what hate is, desiring that someone would not exist anymore. And so um, in Acts chapter 8, we have this transition, but it's, it's really just referring back to the last part of chapter 7. Stephen's death was a turning point in the life of the early church. Until now, the early church had experienced very little persecution, um, it's not popular to be a Christian in any time. And, uh, and you know, it, the result of that, as you'll see, is that, you know, Brian and I were talking this morning. There's churches everywhere, but there's not, most of them would probably have plenty of empty seats on a Sunday morning. Maybe not this many, you know, but we're, we're early, we're new, you know. But, but uh, at the same time, many churches across the country right now are not, there's not many people in them. Now, many, many times we look at that and we go, well, what's wrong? What are we doing wrong? Do, what do we need to do to get them in the doors? Um, anything that we do in our church to get people in the doors, we have to keep, what you get them with is what you've got to keep them with. And so we try to keep it as simple as possible. We want to worship Jesus. We want to study His Word. That's what they continued to do in the early church. And we want to get to know one another. We want to live life together. We want to disciple individuals and teach them how to walk with Jesus. So, so far, the early church, that's what they had been doing, according to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They had continued praying together, worshiping together, uh, studying the apostles' teaching, those guys that had been with Jesus from the beginning. And as they did that, they were kind of in a little holy huddle. And that's what often happens, is churches end up becoming, instead of um, about sharing the gospel with the rest of the world, they become all about themselves. And so... You'll never see Christians outside in, in different areas. You'll just see them at church only. They won't share their faith at work. They won't share their faith with their family members. You know, they'll be very quiet about their faith. They don't, which is okay because you don't want to throw it in people's faces, but it also is about telling other people not anything in particular other than what God has done in your life. It's what you're in love with. You know, you think about a, a, a young relationship, you think about two people dating and you know they're dating. You don't ever have to say, like, who you date? Because they're always together, and they're always talking about he or she. You know, she, the other night, we were talking. And you never have to ask a, a new couple, well, who's she? No, you already know. You're sick of hearing about it. And that's the same when we fall in love with Jesus Christ, that people are sick of hearing about it because that's all we talk about. And, and at the same time, you know, God uses those conversations to spur on other conversations. People start to go... Well, what's different about you than about the guy down the street that says he's a Christian? Well, nothing other than I'm just talking about it. And so, as men were raised up to meet practical needs, or during the persecution, during the early church, let me get back on my thought pattern, basically what happened is um, there was opposition as the church started to grow. And that opposition, many people look at as, well, they were being persecuted because they were doing the right thing. But sometimes God allows trials 
so that we will get out of our holy huddle, so we won't focus in on ourselves, and we'll start to look outside of our little circle to try and reach others. And we're going to see that this week as there's a transition because Stephen's death, his his proclaiming of Jesus as the Messiah that the Old Testament scriptures talked about, stirred up quite a bit of tumult. It It stirred up persecution. And so as men... Uh, were opposing the apostles. They weren't opposing the believers, just the apostles. And then later we see that they opposed, um, they were being opposed from the inside because we had Ananias and Sapphira who claimed to be Christians but were not. And, or, or if anything else, they were, they were lying to the Lord about what they were offering. And then after that, we see opposition on the, um, from the outside that leads to this persecution. And that's what Stephen's experiencing. Uh, men had been raised up to be servants in the church. And as they were raised up and they started serving, God started using Stephen to do miracles. And as he was doing miracles, his testimony was confirmed that he was one that was being used by God. But some of the Jewish priests, because of what he was doing, the religious crowd, they got saved. They had served in the temple for years, but they didn't see Jesus while he was here as the Messiah, and so they rejected him. But as they saw the testimony of Stephen, they heard what he had to say, and then they saw that he was not only saying things, he wasn't just saying, well, I'm a Christian, but he was also doing the things that Jesus taught. They saw this as different because all the religious leaders at the time, they were a group of people that were very outwardly religious, but when you saw them in day-to-day life, they were hypocrites. They weren't anything like they proclaimed to be. And so hopefully, that's what I'm hoping is that as I proclaim to be a Christian and as I study God's word and as I try to obey it to the best of my ability, I'm hoping that as people get to know me, as I'm still new in the community, that they'll see me outside of church and go, wow, that guy really means what he says on Sunday. It matches up with his words. Hopefully I can have a testimony that says, do as I say and do as I do, rather than what most time gets happen happens is people say, do as I say, not as I do. You know, it, that's hypocrisy to wear one mask in this area of my life and there'd be something completely different here. And God wants me to be accountable to that because I even work with people that are believers and they know that I claim to be a Christian. And so if they see me not measuring up, hopefully one of the brothers or sisters will go, hey, what are you doing? Why aren't you living obedient to the Lord? And, and hopefully they'll say that because it'll mean that I'm getting chastised by the Lord. He's going, hey, I see what you're doing. Get your act together. And uh, that's what the Lord is faithful to do. So as Stephen had a good testimony, as he had a good witness, what happened is that those that were against Jesus started to notice and they started to get aggravated because <clears throat> people were seeing his testimony and they were looking at, at the religious leaders and going, wait, these guys are something different outside of church and these guys are faithful. What's the difference there? And the only difference was Jesus. Stephen was living his life to please Jesus. Those men were living their lives to please other men. And when those other men weren't around, they were something totally different. I was like that when I was in college. I was one thing at home and I was another thing when my parents weren't around. You know, Now everybody that you talk to from my hometown would have said, He's a good kid, but it wasn't. I just was a really good actor, you know. I put up a really good front. So last week as we finished studying Acts chapter 7, 
Stephen, instead of defending himself, because they put him on trial, they said, hey, um, we've heard that you're blaspheming against God, against Moses, against the temple, against Abraham, you know, all the, uh, the law, the Ten Commandments. So, but what we need to remember is that all the witnesses that were against Stephen, they were all false witnesses. It says that they induced men to witness falsely against Stephen. And that happens all the time. If you try to live godly, if you try to have a good testimony, there's going to be naysayers. There's going to be haters, as we call them now. There's going to be people come along and say, well, he's not really what he says he is, even if you are. And so you don't have to worry about what people say about you. Let God's testimony be true and let every man be a liar. God knows our hearts, right? Now, sometimes that's scary because our hearts are wicked. But God knows that we trust in Jesus or when we don't. And so last week we studied Acts chapter 7, and Stephen, as he gave his long-winded defense, he shared stories from the Old Testament history that these religious leaders would know. And as he shared that testimony, he, uh, instead of defending himself, he told them what God did. He never once said, well, I did this, and I go to church, and I don't, you know, I don't cuss, I don't chew, I don't go with girls to do. He never said any of that, even though it was true. What he did was he said, look, let's, let's look at God's faithfulness in the past. And then he brought it around to Jesus at the end. And so he did four things in the testimony that he gave in Acts chapter 7. He presented to them very familiar stories that we're not as familiar with, but they were. And so he knew his audience. Number one rule of public speaking, know your audience. He shared testimony about how Moses, Abraham, and Jacob were men that were used by God. And many others that they highly regarded. He says, all these people that you trust in, these people that you claim that they're your fathers in the faith, he told them about them. But he pointed out how when those men that they highly regarded, those men, when they failed, disobeyed, or had for some reason seemed like they had been forsaken by God in the past, God still showed himself to be faithful and was able to fulfill his promises to the nation of Israel anyway. It wasn't because those guys were perfect. It was just because God used them. And God did it anyway, despite their failings. So he said, those guys that you hold up in high regard and you kind of worship in a way, they, were, they failed at times too. But God did it anyway. And then number two, he pointed out that even in Israel's great history, when Israel forsook God and started to worship idols, completely rebelling against God's command... God didn't let, he didn't give up on them. So he says, your people that you claim are, are really great, they were failures. Your nation that you claim, hey, we're God's people. As a nation, you failed in the past, but God was faithful anyway. And then he pointed out to them that God is looking for those who approach him with humble hearts and who approach him from wherever they are geographically because they said, well, you can only worship God in the temple. And what he said was, you can worship God anywhere. The only thing that makes a place special is God's presence there. And he said that he will be with those who are humble and have a contrite or a lowly heart. And then he finished by explaining to them that since the beginning of their nation, the Israelites had a history and a pattern of rejecting every single messenger that God sent to them. So he says, hey, all these people you're bragging about and that you say you claim that you follow what they did, in the past, all of your fathers, all the religious leaders, all the elders, you know what they did to the messengers God sent to them? They persecuted them and they killed them every time. They didn't accept the message that God sent. 
So his message to them, summed up, says, you brag that you're close to God. And we know many people that are like that. And I've done this myself. You brag that you're close to God and that you have the outward sign of God's promise on you. For them, it was circumcision. For us, it might be baptism. You know, I've talked to lots of people. Hey, are you a Christian? Well, back in 1982, I got baptized. I didn't ask you about that. I asked if you were a Christian. What is your faith like today? And so uh, they had the outward sign of God's promise, but their hearts were not surrendered to God at all. Of course, you can imagine, as Stephen's telling this to the high priest and all the religious leaders of Judaism in Jerusalem, you know how they reacted? (laughs) They got very angry and they started to yell and they covered their ears. They squeezed them together is what the Greek word means. So they went, la, 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 I can't hear you. And as they didn't listen, they ran at him with one accord and they threw rocks at him and they stoned him because they claimed he was blaspheming. So they didn't like his message. They told him to shut up and they killed him. So you can imagine that this is a very shaking incident in the early church. But Jesus said it this way. He has said the exact same thing that Stephen said, but Stephen used a lot more words to say it. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, Matthew chapter 15, verse 7 and 8, he said, hypocrites, speaking to this group of people, he said, hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. God doesn't desire for you and I to have words that mean nothing. You know, it's all vanity, is what Ecclesiastes says. Vanity, the word actually means like a soap bubble. If you've ever taken that stuff that you you dip in the little bottle and you blow in it, what happens to that soap bubble is when it blows, it looks like something, but all it takes is a little wind or just a speck of dust, and that thing just busts. It's over. It's like wind. And that's what it is to have a testimony that's only words. It's not really anything other than a bag of wind that could bust at any time. So that's what he's saying. These people, these religious leaders, these were the best of the best in the eyes of those that were in Israel. These people draw near to me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. And the Lord is looking for those whose hearts are surrendered to following him, to being obedient to him no matter what. He doesn't care what we say as long as our lives match up with what we say. And so he gives them this testimony and he says, are you really that sort of believer? And my question as I studied this, and it was a question for myself and I'll give it to you guys. Do you draw near to God with your mouth? Do you proclaim to be a disciple of Jesus? But yet is your heart far from God? Because I go through times where that is the case for me. I'm I'm drawing near to God with my heart, but when he calls me to something that's hard or he's trying to chastise me and teach me something new, I don't want to receive it because I'm just not there. I'm just like, Lord, no. But you can't say, Lord, no. If he's your Lord, then you have to obey him. But the question is, if this is you, you got to realize that your distance from God won't only hurt you, but it will hurt those that are in your life. Because notice that this is what these men that killed Stephen, this was their testimony. They drew near to God with their hearts. They prayed on every day three times. They went to the, they fasted twice a week. They did all these rituals, but their hearts were far from God. So when God sent them a messenger in Acts chapter 7, verse 54, these people whose 
lips professed to be followers of God and yet they were far from him, their actions were way more than just like, well, I don't, you know, I'm not really for God. What they did is seen in there in Acts chapter 7, verse 54. It says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They gnashed at him with their teeth. And then verse 57 says, then they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and they ran at him. Verse 58, they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, lest there be any doubt as to whether he actually died or not, seems like he just went to sleep. But for the believer, that's what death is. We're going to sleep. It's a transition into the next life. Life abundant with him. Uh, but the problem is, is that many people think, well, you know, death is nothing more than just soul sleep. But it's more than that. Uh, to the believer, it's eternity where we translate into pre his presence, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And for those that don't believe in Jesus and haven't surrendered to him, uh, death means separation eternally from God. And that really is the, the punishment. So in uh, verse 8 there, it says, lest there be any doubt as to what happened to Stephen, it says, now Saul was consenting to Stephen's death. And at that time, great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So Jesus' final words to his followers, well, it says that Saul was consenting to Stephen's death, so he definitely died. So as I said before, Stephen's death was a turning point in the life of the church. It says there in verse 1 that they all scattered because of his death, and all of a sudden there's this persecution. It's kind of like uh, what happens when you go uh, shark fishing. You ever gone shark fishing? No, me neither, but I've seen it on Shark Week. And so you go out and they chum the waters, as it were, right? And as soon as you take you know, these cut up pieces of bloody fish, some of them are really nasty, so it puts out a scent, they dump them in the water, and they, you know, these guys are crazy. They're going to dive. They're going to go find these sharks, right? And they want to go get pictures with them. I, I can look at the pictures that they take. That's what I enjoy. I want to see their neat rows of teeth from a distance. I want to see it through Google. I don't want to go there. But these guys, in order to get the, the sharks to come close, for whatever reason, apparently they haven't seen Jaws, they take this chum, these pieces of fish parts, and they throw them in the water, and they want them to be good and bloody. Why? Because scent of blood in the water just makes them, they go into feeding frenzy. They go nuts. And so you can imagine these guys that hate Jesus to the point of, this is the same council that put Jesus to death. They want to put to death anything that has to do with Jesus because they're tired of hearing about him. He, he's convicting to them. And so they'll put to death anything that reminds him that Jesus came and that he really had nothing against them other than that they needed to repent of their sins. And so it, Stephen, when he's put to death, it unleashes the floodgates of just havoc to just pour out. Because if they realize they've kind of set a precedent, hey, if somebody follows Jesus, all of a sudden that's grounds for being put to death. And so they've kind of opened the floodgates for more of that to happen. 
And so they stone Stephen, and all of a sudden, if the leaders of the nation stone a Christian, that kind of puts it out that it's okay for anybody else to. It's the same idea when a, a president or a leader of the nation speaks up on something that the rest of the nation is okay with. And he says, hey, this is okay. We've had that happen recently. We've had the first president in history say that it's okay for homosexuality. And he's supported it to the point of when the leadership goes, so go the people because they will follow the leadership. And all of a sudden this iniquity is going to be just commonplace. Hey, we, you all have to accept it. And not only will they say it's okay, but they're shoving it down our throats saying you have to accept it or you're a bigot. Well, that's kind of what they're in. All of a sudden, killing Christians is just fine. From the leadership down. And so that's happening in nations all around the world, but this is the first martyr in the New Testament, Stephen. But it says there, at that time, verse 1, a great persecution arose, the floodgates are open against the church, which was at Jerusalem. This is one spot, this is one, this is the epicenter of Judaism, and it's the place where Christianity started. And so because of that, this holy huddle is all of a sudden going to be busted open, and people are going to be sent out. Not because they want to leave, but because they feel pressure. All of a sudden, I could die for my faith. What are you going to do? You're going to get out of Dodge. And so they start heading in all these other directions. They're not going to stay around and wait for somebody to knock on the door and go, hey, we got to stone you. Come on out to the, to the street. They're going to get out. So as they're getting out, what we would see as a, a mishap, something that's completely out of control, we have to know that even in those moments, God's in control. And he's going to, Romans 8.28 says that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Do you know that you and I have a purpose that God has given us ahead of time before we were ever born from our mother's womb? And he's got a plan that he wants to fulfill for this group, for Stephen even. It meant that he was going to die what we would call early. He died early. He was a young man. He's like 40 to 45. That's young. In the life scheme of, you know, 100 years that we could or could not have. And so many people would look at it and go, well, Stephen died young. So it says there in verse 1 that they were scattered. But what I wanted to point out is that there are two different Greek words in the Greek language for scatter. And as I think of the word scatter, one has the idea of scattering in the sense of making something disappear. When someone dies, sometimes they, they have themselves burned and they, they have a little urn with ashes and they say, spread me over a, over a lake. So to scatter would mean to, to dump out and let the wind drive it, and then it is no more, right? It gets spread out. Or there's another Greek word. The other word has the idea of scattering in the sense of planting or sowing seeds. This is the ancient Greek word that's used here. They were scattered. Not just to get rid of them, but to spread them out more evenly so that the crop can raise up. And so more growth can happen because what happens when something grows and it drops more seed where it was planted? That seed gets blown. We're getting ready to see those dandelions change from pretty yellow to those white, annoying little things that spread all over the yard. But because they spread out evenly because wind drives those seeds off the top. Now when those seeds dry off, it means that that flower is now dead. 
but those seeds, when they go planted in some other ground, mean life. So Stephen is like one of those dandelions. His death, him being put in the ground, means that more life can happen, because though the persecution may seem like a bad thing, Jesus had told his disciples, I'm going to use you to spread the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the outermost regions of the world. He actually said that in Acts chapter 1. That was his final words to his disciples. He says, It is not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You can't be a witness to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world, earth if you stay where you're at. And so they didn't want to leave because they were comfortable. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but when I'm comfortable, I don't want to go anywhere. I want to stay in my deal. But God said, I've got bigger plans for you. I want to use you in different regions. And so persecution happens. They leave because they have to. But God used it to blow them, as it were, like those seeds. And so as he blew them, they went to, it says there in verse one, Judea and Samaria, which he told them, I'm going to use you as witnesses, but they never left. They weren't doing that. And so God allowed some trials and tribulation for them to be driven to a different direction. Verse two says, and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and they made great lamentation over him. That word, that phrase there, it says carried to his burial actually means... Um, it has more meaning than just carry to his burial. It means to carry together, to bring the dead to the company of the other dead. This is the same phrase in the Greek that farmers would use to describe bringing in the harvest. So many people would look at um, his life, Stephen's life, and say, well, well, it's kind of a waste, don't you think? He died young. Uh, all his death did was bring persecution. Um, but a pastor by the name of David Guzik put it this way. He said, Stephen's death might seem sort of meaningless at first. His young ministry of power and eloquence was cut abruptly short. His ministry also seemed to end in failure. No one was immediately brought to faith. We can't tell by any, anything that's written in Scripture. And all that came forth was more persecution against the church. So many people would say, well, that was kind of a waste and it was kind of... It caused a lot of trouble, so what's the point? But then he ends by saying, As always has been the case, the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. So when someone dies, it causes other people to raise up and go, This is worth fighting for, let's take the hill. It's kind of like the idea when you, go, when you see these war movies, and they're, they're lined up. I think it, was, uh, it wasn't Braveheart, what was it? The Patriot. They line up. And all of a sudden, these two lines of people are coming together. And when they were fighting in the, the, these wars, all of a sudden, you know, someone... I think this was the Civil War. No, I should have... I just came off the top of my head. I don't even know why I'm rambling on about it. But they were lined up together. And as, as is usually the case, no one's firing a shot. But all of a sudden, somebody has a misfire. Somebody on the other side gets shot. And this side's like, it's on! And they're going for it. And that's kind of what's happening in the early church, is that... This death has caused other people to go, you know what, we don't have hope in this life alone. We could die at any day. Our faith in Jesus could get us killed. So if we can't live for this life and comfort here, let's live for life and comfort in this second life. Let's, 
Store up our treasure in heaven as Jesus has taught us because we don't know when our days will end. And so all of a sudden, as they're spread out, it says that in verse 3, as for Saul, there was this man against him. He made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. But because of that, therefore, verse 4 says, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. They said, you know what? We could die any day. We may as well make our life count. And so that's what they did. They were scattered, but as they were scattered and they shared their testimony about what God had done in their lives, they were doing that in other regions that had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ before. His death, his murder, number one, revealed the true hearts of those in Jerusalem, that they were not just against God, but they hated him, and they wanted to kill anybody that would tell them different about their God. But number two, Stephen's death, rather the way that he died, will eventually have a great impact on one man who was there consenting to it. Saul, it says Saul, after this killing of Stephen, he went on a rampage. He was that shark that had been in chummed waters and all of a sudden he starts throwing a fit and he made havoc on the church. The word there for making havoc on the church in the Greek, I know I've been throwing a lot of these out today, but it kind of opened up the passage to me. To wreak havoc on the church actually is the word that farmers would use back then to explain when a, a wild hog would get into their vineyard and destroy all their vines. And we can kind of relate to this because, you know, you got guys shooting wild hogs all over the place. I see pictures on Facebook where people are going on these wild hog shoots because these hogs are going into these cornfields. And as they go in, they're just eating everything as they go through. They're like a, a horde of locusts. They destroy the crop and then they can't make any money off of it because they're eating all their profits. And so they're, they're destroying people's family lives. They're knocking on the doors, dragging men and women out. And they're, they're putting them in prison because they're Jesus' followers. So they're trying to discourage anybody from joining their ranks. The end result of this horrific event was not a waste, but instead it was ordained by God. It was chosen. He allowed it, and it was used for His glory. We always need to realize that if God allows bad things, what we would see as bad things to happen in our lives, oftentimes what He's trying to do is He's trying to allow that bad thing to cause us to cling closer to Jesus. He's allowing that hardship that's going on in your life so that you will trust more in Him. And I say that because I've experienced that over this last year. This last year as God moved us to Ironton, out from our comfort zone, we were in our own little Jerusalem there. We had people within walking distance that we knew. Um, We kind of trusted in them probably more than we should. But as we were in that spot, when God called us to move down here, He was calling us to trust Him more to get to know some more people, to share our testimony and what God's done personally in our lives with other people that maybe haven't heard that before. I know, I don't know about you guys, but I went to church for a lot of years, but I never heard how someone had been impacted by an individual, by Jesus, and how it had affected them in their personal lives. I'd heard a lot about going to church. I had heard a lot about singing praise music. I was on the worship team. I sang with the choir up front. But I had not heard a whole lot of people talk about how they needed God because they were sinners. I had not heard a lot of people talk about how God had changed their lives from lives of depravity and sin 
and and saved them and freed them up so that they didn't nobody was making them go to church but they wanted to be there and so uh you know god allows pressures in our lives to move us to different spots and sometimes we don't know why until the end but the good thing is that he also wants to show us why he's moved us to a different spot and then as we're looking for our own building for the church to rent I got nervous because I was like, man, there's not really that many people coming yet. You know, how are we going to pay for this? How's this going to happen? And then as we moved in and at that time, my job got moved to St. Louis. And I'm like, Lord, why are you allowing my job to move to St. Louis? I can't drive two hours each way. What am I going to do? And he said, trust me. I want you to trust more in me than you do your job. I want you to trust more in me than where you live. I want you to trust me. I want you to cling closely to me because... Your salvation is more than just about you getting your ticket punched to heaven. I want a relationship with you, Mike Mingy. And as I realized that, and as we went through that trial, and I started going, okay, Lord, if that's the case, then I'm going to trust you for a job. Lord, please provide for us, because I'm the only one working at this point. What do you want us to do next? And so as we prayed, God provided a job right there in the same town, right there in a place full of people, probably three, 400 people work there at a time that don't know Jesus, most of them. I would say that 90% of them don't know Jesus. So because of that, they might have heard of Jesus, but they do not have a personal relationship with him. And so because of that, I know that God moved me from an office of eight people to an office with eight people, but then a whole factory right outside my window of hundreds of people that need the love of Jesus Christ. They need to hear about salvation so they can stop striving to be happy by doing whatever they do on the weekend. And so God has a plan when he allows hardships in our lives and moves us. That's my testimony anyway. But out of this persecution, this diaspora, these seeds scattered, um, we get several letters that are written. That's what I'm going to close on today. In 1 Peter chapter 1, this is, there's three or four of the epistles are written to believers that were scattered. He writes them in 1 Peter 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he then explains who he's writing to, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That word there for uh, diaspora, that uh, scattering, actually means, I had it in here, it was a word used specially and concretely to describe the converted Israelite Jewish people living in Gentile countries because they were around people they didn't know. They were around people that didn't believe in or know Jesus. And so he writes to them in verse Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us, he's making us born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's given us an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away, that's reserved in heaven for us, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And then he writes an interesting phrase to them. In this, he says, you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. He says, if need be, You've been grieved by various trials. For our faith, it's important that sometimes we go through trials. Verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith, the purity, 
being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, that the purity of your faith may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So he says, sometimes God wants to refine your trust in him by allowing hardships and trials, because if he does, it's the best for us. If he gives us some diversity, it'll cause us to trust less in our circumstances and more in him. And so he says, our faith, our, the purity of our faith, is much more precious than gold that will perish. And so he's creating in us refined pieces of jewelry. But it's more important because he wants to refine us. And sometimes he allows the heat to turn up like a furnace when they're taking gold and refining it. What they do is, well, silver anyway, they put it in a cauldron, they melt it down, and then when heat is turned up, it melts, and then what comes up to the top is the impurities. And when those impurities are there, they take this rake and they rake off what's called the dross. And the Lord allows the heat turn up in our lives so that we can be more pure in our faith in Him, and sometimes that means the dross has to come off the top. And what's funny is oftentimes the dross is things that you and I tend to cling to. You know, whether it's a friendship or whether it's, for me, it was a job that I trusted in more than I trusted in the Lord. He says, I want to take that away from you. I'm going to give you something else, which for my case was a job that was way harder. And, but he showed me even in that. I, I pray every day now as I'm driving to work, Lord, I don't know how to do this job. Help me. And then when I'm at the end of the day, I'm like, wow, I don't know how I made it through the day. That had to be him. And so... May he have our perf his perfect work be done in us. Lord, may we be uh, those that when trials come, they don't cause us to give up or throw in the towel. But may we be those who, when you turn up the heat, uh, we embrace it. And Lord, may we be those who um, learn to trust you more in the trials. Lord, uh, we don't pray for trials. <laughs> we want our lives to be comfortable and easy. But it seems to me that we pray a lot more when things are hard. And so, Lord, thank you that when you allow those things to happen to us, that we cling even closer to you. And I pray that we would be those that would do that. And I also pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be like those Pharisees or even the high priests that were trying Stephen and ultimately put him to death. Lord, may we be those who not only draw near to you with our lips, but may we be those who draw near to you with our hearts. Lord, give us humble hearts broken, realizing our sinfulness, realizing that we need to be changed by you. And Lord, uh, as you change us, Lord, may we be thankful. May we realize how much of a privilege it is to have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. So Lord, uh, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for the attention span of everyone. And Lord, I just pray that uh, you would bless us as we spend, uh, hopefully, uh, for those of us that have the day off tomorrow, Lord, may we just get to spend a little bit of time uh, considering what you've done for us and, and for those that have sacrificed for us so that we have all the freedoms that we do in this country or we don't experience a whole lot of adversity. And we thank you for that. But Lord, if it causes us to cling closer to you and to depend upon you more deeply, then Lord, allow wind to blow so that we'll see where we need to change and so we'll be purified and made holy and and uh, learn to trust you more. Lord, we love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.